Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a guest I've been seeking for a while, uh, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. He's a natural healing consultant, an inventor, public speaker, a forensic psychiatrist, and an expert witness. Uh, he completed psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from uh, Medical University of South Carolina. And he has a BS from uh, MIT in molecular biology. I've been seeing a lot of uh, Dr. Kaufman's work in regards to COVID. Uh, I think he has a very unique perspective on it. So that's why I wanted to speak to him. So, Andrew, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Richard. Yeah. Well, tell me, how did COVID first hit your radar and uh, what were you doing before COVID came? Well, you know, it's quite interesting, actually, because I had uh, just decided to kind of uh, start talking publicly, uh, criticizing uh, mainstream medicine in about November of 2019 after kind of deliberating about that for a year. And that was only a few months before this thing really started. I had a trip to California in February of 20. And I remember on the way back, I was flying through the San Jose airport. And um, in the terminal, I saw people wearing masks. And I knew about what had happened in China. And this was kind of the first really alarming sign that something serious was going on. So that's when I started really feverishly uh, doing research on it. And then... um... What has been your perception uh, when when things went into March and you know lockdown started? What were your thoughts just then? And I want to keep going forward till now, obviously. But you know what happened yeah. in March? 
Well, of course. So, you know, when I saw that there were policies being changed to deal with this, and, you know, I've observed lots of epidemics and pandemics uh, come around. It seems like every couple of years we're inundated with, a, you know, a new viral illness. And I say that in air quotes. And so when I saw things happening in China, and of course, when the World Health Organization made their announcement that it was a pan had reached pandemic status, you know, I knew something serious was up. And what I really wanted to do at first was look at, okay, let's start from the beginning. I'm going to look at the papers where they say they've found this virus, and I'm going to see what that shows. And then I'll follow essentially the trail of evidence. And this is something that I you know, kind of typically do when an issue comes up. And I think a lot of it is rooted in my forensic psychiatry training as sort of being an investigator of sorts. Wait, wait, you use evidence and you actually read papers instead of just listening to the media? It's weird. Well, you know, it wasn't always that way, but I went through a real kind of uh, individual evolutionary process uh, several years ago when I had a number of circumstances in my personal life, uh, including some, some tragedy and loss. And it was just kind of an opportunity for me to look at things a little bit differently. And I had a friend who had already been looking at things from a different perspective, and he was kind of poking at me, especially about this issue of global warming and climate change. And when I was in that kind of uh, vulnerable grief state um, and just rethinking my worldview, I said, okay, I'm going to take this time to start researching this and I'm going to prove my friend wrong and I'm going to show him all of the science, you know, that backs up the global warming narrative. And after about 60 to 80 hours of my time spent researching it, I was just astonished because I couldn't really find any credible scientific evidence to support my previous opinion. And so this really started me off on a process of reexamining all of the different, you know, subjects that of importance to me and seeing, well, what, what does the evidence really show? Let's let me look, do a deep dive and, and look at the primary evidence for these things and see what I find. And mm -hmm. virtually everything I looked at ended up being turned upside down. Yeah, I found one paper. It was done with, um, I believe, the Wuhan Laboratory in University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And they talked about taking a, a SARS backbone and doing some gain of function research on it to make it ineffective to humans. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, if I was any world leader, I would demand everyone that worked on this paper to come before me immediately and tell me everything they knew. And I, I don't know if you've run across that one. I believe it was in nature, but it seemed to be literally like a playbook for, you know, what's happened now. Well, you know, it's quite interesting looking at that research, because, you know, one thing is that we really don't know the extent of any weapons related research, because most of this is top secret and classified by the government. So when there is a little bit of leaked thing put out here and there, it, it's really probably just the tip of the iceberg as to what's really going on in government uh, sponsored laboratories. But in order to make, you know, a, a so-called weaponized germ, you first need to have a natural model to work from, right? So we have this model of germ theory that says that there are these you know, microscopic agents that invade our bodies from the outside and cause disease. But when you really look at the evidence behind that, what you see is that there is no evidence behind that. So if they're trying to make a weaponized germ and there's no actual um, truth to the fact that germs cause disease or spread from person to person, 
how could you make a weapon that does that? That would be, you know, a really, really far-fetched type of invention. So what I think really the research that they're doing is, is that they're really researching how to make more toxic vaccines. Because if you look at how they have done experiments to allegedly prove that a new virus exists, you'll see that it's exactly the same recipe that's used to make new vaccines. So if they are essentially messing with that process, then I would say the most likely thing that they're doing is really manufacturing some kind of vaccine that could be weaponized. Well, if um, if you don't know if viruses exist, I mean, what what do you think they are? I've I've looked, you know, at the literature, and it looks like extracellular vesicles are somewhat similar to viruses. And I've also interviewed someone that talked about, uh, actually, I believe it's the ARC gene in people that literally creates genetic material encapsulated in a capsid, which looks exactly like a virus and the body produces this. So do you think that viruses are actually like extracellular vesicles or they're produced by the body or what do you think they are? Well, see, here's the thing. You're trying to compare a virus to these other things. But the thing is, there's never been an experiment that has actually purified a virus out of a sick person. So in other words, they've never actually shown that this thing that they call a virus exists. Never, not in one study for any illness. So what they do show in pictures of papers where they claim to have discovered these viruses is pretty much what you describe, which is they show dying and diseased cells that are breaking down. And we know that it's a normal cell process that cells put out vesicles um, in fact, the process is called exocytosis. It's a, a very basic biological process that everyone who took introductory biology learned about. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So you can see particles in healthy cells and a lot of particles in dying cells because there's plenty of scientific papers that show that when cells undergo death, the dying process, that they put out all sorts of particles. So all they've done is show particles put out by cells. And in fact, what they do is they do a culture in a foreign uh, type of cell like monkey kidney. So they show that monkey kidney cells make particles. But what does that have to do with a virus that has never been shown. You know, it'd be one thing if they demonstrated that here's a virus and here's how it works, and then did an experiment and showed that it works according to the model that's already been proven. But the thing is that they're using this data to say that this is proof that the thing exists and causes an infection, but there's, there's absolutely no way that the experiments they do could even show that. So in other words, what I'm saying is there's never been a virus that's been shown to cause disease. And any of those viruses, you know, labeled as that, they haven't even been proven to exist by scientific experiment. Well, so what do you think it is that makes people sick that, uh, you know, has all the characteristics of a viral illness? What is it? 
Well, the important thing to realize here is that it's not a virus. Because if you make an extraordinary claim, as Carl Sagan is quoted to say, that it requires extraordinary evidence. And the claim is that there is a, you know, microscopic nanoparticles that exist in the environment and invade us and cause disease. And if you haven't actually taken any steps to prove that, then you can simply take that theory and toss it out because there's there's zero evidence to support that. So now you have a situation where you want to know, well, what really does cause disease? But the thing is, is that over the past 100 years, there's been billions and billions of dollars of research, and it's all been spent looking at germs. For example, in the 60s, President Nixon initiated a major scientific research campaign known as the War on Cancer. Well, it turns out that the overwhelming majority of all those research funds were hunting for viruses that cause cancer. Well, after so many years and so many billion dollars, there was no success whatsoever. So while all of this frivolous research has been going on to support a devoid theory, there's been almost no research to the contrary looking for what are the true causes of disease. And this is why you see over the course of the last century that there have been no cures developed for any diseases. The only new treatments that come out only reduce symptoms and are require lifelong treatment. Well, what about bacteria or parasites or fungi or yeasts or protists, etc.? Do you believe that there's evidence for them and it's just viruses that isn't enough? Or what are your thoughts? Well, it, let me tell you, it's not about belief. It's about looking at the evidence and then making an opinion or a judgment. So I've looked at the evidence for bacteria and I've looked at the evidence for fungi, and there is no evidence uh, that those things cause disease either. So in other words, the experiments that were done either were fraudulently faked which Pasteur did with several experiments and later on confessed about it. Or they, they just weren't done in such a way that could really prove anything because they weren't successful doing the experiments the proper way. So for instance, uh, take a disease, cholera. Now, this is a kind of a scary disease. It kills a lot of people in developing countries uh, where they have contaminated water supply and it causes serious diarrhea. And there was a professor of microbiology because it was alleged that this illness, cholera, was caused by a bacteria called Vibrio cholerae. And what happened was that this microbiology professor who saw that those experiments were not proven, he actually grew a pure culture of this bacteria, cholera. And once a year, he would swallow it right in front of his class. And then they would observe to see if he ever got sick. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So this is the kind of thing that if they really did the experiments, that's what they would show. And it's been since shown with cholera that it's actually when that bacteria and others metabolize sewage. In other words, they eat sewage in the water. They make a toxic substance as their waste product. And that is what causes cholera. And it has nothing to do with the bacteria invading and growing in their body. It's that they simply drank a poison that was produced by a bacteria. And, you know, that doesn't also, just to clarify, if you ate waste of humans, that would also be poison and make you ill. So it's not that bacterial, you know, bacteria make poisons that are unique to humans. It's just that any organism that 
when they eat and they excrete waste products and those waste products can be toxic. So what are your thoughts about, you know, the, the microbiome of people? Well, you know, clearly there's a, a ton of research, right, you know, that's come out in the last 10 years. And of course, no one points out how this actually contradicts germ theory. But what it's been, you know, pretty much put into common knowledge at present is that we have all of these microorganisms that live in our body. And in fact, by some estimates, they outnumber our own human cells by 10 to 1. And it's now, you know, everyone understands that these bacteria and fungi are actually essential for us to live and survive. And for example, they found sequences of DNA from bacteria in our gut in our own brain cells. And we know that if people don't have the normal bacteria living in their body because of a toxic lifestyle or overuse of antibiotics, that they are unable to achieve a good state of health. So what do you think causes illness, you know, the various kinds of illness that people have observed? Well, what I think, um, and this is based on, you know, my own experience of observing people, hearing stories and uh, working with clients, as well as looking at what scientific studies are out there and also looking at the traditional healing paradigms of various cultures around the world. And as far as I can tell, there are really only four causes of disease. Uh, one is poisoning or toxicity. The second is a malnutrition or a, def a deficiency in some form of nutrients. The third would be a psychological shock or trauma. And the fourth would be physical trauma. In other words, something that damages the structure or the structural integrity of your body. And essentially, those are really uh, the cause of all diseases. So have you been sick in your life many times or have you been pretty healthy? Like what's what's been your personal experience? Well, I haven't had any uh, major life-threatening illnesses. I did have appendicitis uh, several years ago before I started looking at this information and got myself healthy. But since I have a, really learned about what constitutes a healthy lifestyle and adopted those principles, I haven't been sick at all. Oh, wow. So how could it be that so many researchers are researching bacteria and viruses and other things and I mean, they're laboring under false pretenses. How could that be? Well, there's a, a very simple answer, uh, which essentially is follow the, follow the money. Now, I, you know, used to be in academic medicine and actually had a small research program. And early in my career, I really wanted to focus on scientific research. But what I realized is that the only way to make that happen is to do whatever research the government wants because they have all the money. So virtually all research grants in the United States, although there are some private ones, but those always are for a commercial interest, almost all the grants available are put out by the government, the National Institutes of Health, for me, the National Institutes of Mental Health, which is part of the NIH, and the National Science Foundation, and then the Department of Defense. And those are the agencies that fund all medical research. And they, what they do is they put out announcements and they have a research objective that comes from the top, like from people like Fauci. And they say, we want you to do this experiment and study this. And if that so happens to be the area that you're interested in, it's great. But that is almost never the case for anybody. So essentially, if you want to make a living and be funded to do this, because you know, especially if you're doing virology or molecular biology research, it's, it's very expensive. You know, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to run a laboratory at minimum. 
And so you're beholden to do essentially whatever research you're directed by that funding source. So what is the state of research consequently as a result of this? I guess incremental at best and topics that uh, people want to research just, I mean, do they try to use grant money and insert them into the research they have to do or they just don't get done? Well, you basically, if you want to be a scientist, you have to tailor your research to whatever the type of research has funding available. So it doesn't matter what you're interested in. And and I'll tell you that most of the ones, at least in mental health, they had to do with drug discovery. So in other words, finding new targets either for new drugs or for new diagnostic tests. So really all commercially related research because there are clear commercial outcomes as a result of, of those lines of research. There were no opportunities to do more more basic research and no opportunities for me. I wanted to study marginalized population of the mentally ill who are incarcerated or homeless and things like that. And there was almost no money to fund that unless it was, you know, to do a drug trial <laughs> in that population. So that that's the way that it's been, you know, for quite a long time. But not always. There was a time in the United States before the Rockefellers and other, you know, robber barons started to take over the medical system where scientific research was driven by the interest and passion of the scientist and that it was in the spirit of curiosity and understanding nature rather than, you know, only where there's money available for specific things and all goes into product development for commercial interests and supports, you know, whatever the, the pharmaceutical or paradigm is at the time. So how much of science is channeled through, you know, NIH and, you know, it goes towards finding new drugs and new viruses and new vaccines and things like that. And is, is not blue sky research, but incremental. But what percentage of it is, is that way now? Oh, I, I'd say almost all of it. Jesus. Yeah, it's very disheartening. So what, what do scientists do? They just, they go along to get along. I mean, do they, do you think that they try to maybe insert from time to time things that they want to study into the research or there's really no room for that. Well, I think what they do is that they get as close as they can. And so, you know, if they're, let's say that they're learned about some, you know, basic cellular signaling pathway, right? So they just want to study that and uncover what it is, but that's not going to get them a grant. However, if they want to say, okay, we'll study this signaling pathway in lung cancer. Well, now lung cancer has a big market, right? So if they uncover a signaling pathway in lung cancer, that could lead to a drug development. So what they'll do is they'll phrase the project like that. Or, you know, here's another example. Let's say you're an ecologist and you want to study, you know, uh, mole rats, for example, and you're just interested. You think they're cute and furry, or maybe they have some special attribute in their behavior that piques your interest and you want to study them. But, you know, how, there aren't many grants out there to study naked mole rats. However, if you phrase it this way, you know, the impact of climate change on naked mole rats, you know, in whatever uh, jungle or setting, then you're going to be able to find a grant that says studying the effect of climate change on, you know, small mammals. And then the naked mole rat is one. So now you found a funding source to do your research, but you have to slant it to this narrative. And whether, you know, whether that's true or not, that's the way to get funded. So this is, I think, the, you know, in the day-to-day -day terms, how a lot of this stuff plays out. Well, as the COVID situation, it's, it's, it's gotten even worse. I talked to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of scientists, and they can't even do their normal work because everything is for COVID lately. 
and they weren't allowed into their labs and they weren't allowed to do something, you know, so I mean, pretty much it, it's gotten worse when I see all science was put on hold for at least a year, just about in order to, you know, everyone wants to work on COVID or is forced to. What have you observed? Well, you know, it's I, I really uh, don't know how to monitor that exactly because I don't work uh, for a university in a research position. Um, and, you know, I don't survey the literature, but certainly there are just tons and tons of population publications related to COVID that have come out in the last year. I mean, it's it's overwhelming because, you know, I'm somebody who tries to keep up with everything. And then, of course, lots of people send me new articles when they come out. And it's incredible. It's like all of the scientific effort has gone towards studying various elements of this pandemic, but all of the science you, is all worthless because it's all based on a false um, assumption, which is that there is a virus. So all, all of these studies about masks or social distancing or lockdowns or PCR tests, they're all completely meaningless. And you can throw out every last bit of data because they all are based on the, you know, false assumption that there's a virus causing disease. And since that's not true, they're all worthless. So really what you could say is that over the last year, there's been an extreme amount of wasted effort in scientific inquiry. Why do you think COVID got like this where everyone gets so crazy about everything and is trying to, I mean, I just, I guess I saw it early on as like a power grab and an opportunity um, and people don't want to relinquish that power once they get it. But I mean, what's your thought of this whole this whole past year plus? Why has this gone on? Well, you know, it's interesting what you say, because I think that many people involved at the lower levels of government and such uh, really did have that approach exactly. But, you know, my opinion is, and there's a lot of documentation of this, is that this is actually a planned and manipulated psychological operation, and that it's basically being exploited to move forward the United Nations um, agenda for the 21st century. And this is there's many other documents and organizations that talk about this essentially globalist future. And there are a lot of words like sustainable development and things like that. And if you look at all of the countries that acted in lockstep after the World Health Organization announcement last year, it's unprecedented. And so it was so well coordinated and it fits so well with all of these written plans that it's clear that this is what's going on. So they're using this false science and fear tactics by using a lot of computer models to, you know, exaggerate the possible worst outcomes by orders of magnitude, like 10 and a hundred fold worse than anything that's happened in reality. And when you have people in fear, they are much easier to manipulate in terms of performing conditioning, which is a psychological approach to change behavior of people and animals. It's the same way that we uh, train dogs, for example. But you can be conditioned without even realizing that it's occurring. And this is quite common. In fact, they even taught us a little bit about this during my psychiatry training. And then they're also using hypnosis uh, through the television to put these uh, false messages into people. And you could see that all of the main media channels are essentially echoing the same exact um, information and narrative. And yeah, yeah. So basically all they using, you know, mind control techniques like hypnosis and behavioral conditioning and fear in order to manipulate people's uh, thinking and behavior. And 
and they've done it extremely successfully because you know almost all the people have agreed to one by one um, give up their freedoms. Well, they've also gotten people to turn on each other and police each other. You know, put your mask on, you know. So that's probably the worst of all is that uh, you know they've gotten people to do this themselves. And that's the same tactic, by the way, that the Nazis used during their campaign uh, by uh, using the so-called brown shirts. Who do you think is behind all this that is uh, that has started this and perpetuating it? Well, you know, there are different uh, sort of levels and layers, and I don't think I can, you know, point to uh, one or two or three people, you know, who are the root cause of everything. But certainly, we see the participation um, of a lot of different key figures. And of course, you know, one that's been talked about more than any other, perhaps, is Bill Gates. Uh, But there are many others. So you have the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and the other participants at Davos and, and others of their meetings who are complicit. You have all of these other agencies that are really kind of above the governments that coordinate between different governments and, you know, top members of all the governments participate in these groups. And I'm talking about groups like the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the Bilderberg Group, the Rockefeller Foundation, um, and at the Trilateral Commission. There are many uh, groups like that. And so they have definitely a role. And then the central banks have a huge role. Huge role. So who the private owners of you know, the Federal Reserve and the other central banks, which is definitely includes uh, the Rothschild banking dynasty and some others. Um, all of those folks are all involved. And that's why you can see this coordinated through every sector of society. This is not just healthcare, right? It involves all of business, it involves food systems, uh, transportation and travel, um, etc. So do you think that this is a plan for what the Great Reset, um, a chance for what consolidation of power, or, or what do you think that this is about? Yeah, well, if you look at all of those documents, um, you can see that essentially the goal is to have a globalist society where essentially individual sovereignty of nations is either completely dissolved or greatly diminished, and that mm. you know the justification is that. Everyone has to pull together in order to face the challenge of pandemic viruses and global warming and all of these other doomsday uh, scenarios that have been uh, put forth in the propaganda. Uh, do you think that it's working? Um, if you go through the timeline from March until now, do you see any signs that things are improving or is it, uh, is it not looking good? I don't think it's looking good at all. And, you know, I know that we are really sheltered here in the United States. And I believe the reason why things have been much slower here to progress is because we have a high ownership of firearms and a very rebellious uh, spirit in this country. But in other nations in the Western world where they people are not allowed to own firearms and they've been much more subdued slowly into socialism like Canada, the UK, and all of Western Europe, um, Israel, interestingly, Australia, New Zealand, the policies are much harsher in those countries. For example, in the United Kingdom, they have since December had severe lockdowns where people are not allowed out at night. They're not allowed out every day. They have very, very limited time even for shopping. They're not allowed to take a walk outside or go in their yard. I mean, really severe restriction. They also have national programs to have vaccine IDs like electronic vaccine passes. Whereas in the United States, you know, they only pilot it 
for Madison Square Garden for a small group of people, they're basically pushing out on the entire nation um, in many of these European countries. So in those countries, also, people have been arrested for refusing to wear a mask, for walk, mm-hmm. taking a walk during lockdown yep. and incarcerated, n- not just fined. In Canada, people have been detained coming out of the airport, have at their own expense and not given enough food to eat and have their freedom restricted. And I mean, th- there's some really severe things going on around the world right now. And I feel like we're, we're somewhat... Uh, sheltered and unaware, but this is definitely coming to states as well. Oh, you think, I mean, you know, recently some of the states have uh, gotten rid of mask mandates and things like that. I mean, do you think that it's going to worsen in the U.S. or is it going to split amongst uh, red and blue states? What do you think will happen? Well, you know, I think it it is good that states have somewhat independent, you know, ability to make decisions. And I think I got a message from someone this morning that there are currently 16 states uh, without, you know, requirements or executive orders uh, to wear masks. So that is definitely a good sign. But I cannot see the powers who are running this giving up on the United States. This is uh, one of the largest nations, has the biggest military, has tons of resources. And, you know, it's going to move forward. But I think they're going to be very, very strategic and they're going to rely on on cooperation. So, for example... I saw recently that the CDC put out an announcement that they are going to recommend and, you know, their recommendations, of course, are not governing in any state, but they they highly influence the states. And they're going to recommend that people who are vaccinated uh, can now attend, uh, you know, in-person gatherings. And I think that what they would like to happen is that people start doing that and it becomes insane. Everyone goes along with it because they want that privilege. And they're going to try and get as, as many people as possible vaccinated by that strategy rather than saying, you know, okay, you'll, you know, you can't do anything. You basically have to stay at home if you're not vaccinated, which is what they're describing doing in some of the other countries. So, you know, this is how I think things are going to be different and a little slower in the United States. And they seem to have a few key states that they're testing things out where they put harsher restrictions like California, for example, where they put a curfew at the same time they were doing it in the kingdom. But in California, you know, people didn't observe it very strictly. And they also didn't, you know, send out the Gestapo to arrest people like they did in the U.S. I mean, where is the sources of resistance that you see? And uh, I mean, do you see that more people are believing in what's going on less? Do you think that if this goes on for you know, enough time long enough from here that uh, it's just not going to work because people are going to say, I've had it. This is ridiculous. No, I I think people are going to continue to go along with it and that there's going to be a splintering of society into people who, you know, stay in that system and essentially give up all their freedom versus uh, people who make a decision that they're going to exit that system and form some kind of separate parallel society of sorts, which is, uh, you know, certainly the camp that I will be in. Do you think that's going to happen, what, across state lines? Or do you think, like, what do you think that's going to look like, let's say, for the U.S.? Well, it's very, very difficult to say. I think it's going to be very decentralized. Um, You know, I could envision that there become certain, you know, regions where that attract people because those, uh, you know, parts of the country already um, are more freedom oriented. Like, for example, if you look at the states currently that have no mask 
requirements, you'll see that they're very conservative states by and large. So it's like, you know, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Mississippi, Tennessee, Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, right? Very conservative and freedom-oriented type states. So I think that it's quite likely that there will be larger communities of you know, freedom-seeking people who want to exit the Babylonian system, who will, you know, settle in some of those areas. Uh, But I think it's going to be, you know, quite spread out. And then over time, I'm hopeful that more and more people will wake up to the truth. Because, you know, it's interesting, the question you asked, are people changing their minds? And there's really only one direction you can change your mind about this, because you can you know, be a believer that there's a scary illness killing a bunch of people and that vaccines will save you and masks will protect you and all that stuff. But if you actually look at information, you're going to find out that none of that's true. And then once you find that out, you can't then go back to believing those things. So I think if you change your mind, you're only going in that direction. I don't think anyone who realizes the truth is going back to be scared of a fake virus. Right. So, yeah, I agree. so over time, I, you know, people definitely more and more each day are seeing things as they are, but it's a very, you know, slow process and, and it will take time. And, and there's sort of a second part to it because when, once you look at that and realize some of the truth, then you, you have to decide, am I going to acknowledge this truth? which means I actually have to change my behavior in some way, or am I going to pretend I didn't just find out the truth, right? And, and continue living in, in denial as I have been. And that's a very tricky thing because in order to fully accept the truth, you know, there are consequences. So for example, if your, you know, job is to sell masks and then you realize that masks is, you know, a ritual to uh, separate people from each other, you you can no longer go on doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, now you're directly causing harm to people. So a lot of people are not willing to face that and are sort of living, you know, two, two parallel lives where on the, on the inside, they know what's really going on, but on the outside, they're still participating in that system. And, and, you know, people need to really reconcile that because that conflict is actually, it's going to make you unhealthy. <laughs> and also it's going to perpetuate the problems that, that you realize uh, are harming you. So, I mean, do you think that this is, uh, I mean, it's working really well, you know, this, this uh, essentially like this mass delusion about masks and the pandemic yes. and everything? I think it's working far better than intended. I mean, people mm. seem to just buy whatever they're told hook, line and sinker without questioning anything. And they're willing to give up. I mean, there are parents who are, you know, quarantining their children in the basement, mm. and not hugging them and not spending any time with them and communicating through text messages in the same house. Really? Yes. It's crazy. Yes. And crazy. it is crazy. I mean, that's, the kind of ridiculous things that people are doing out of fear and irrational. After a year of this, how could anyone still be, you know, totally frightened by it? I, I don't get it. I mean, I can understand in the beginning, you know, I well, was worried too for about a month, but how could you be frightened still after all this time? You can't wear two masks, things like that. It's insane. You can't underestimate the power of the hypnosis. When people are in a spell, they are unable to think rationally outside of the regulations of that spell. And, you know, 
I'm not just talking, you know, about some far-fetched magic here. I'm talking about television. The patent for television is very specific that there has to be a screen refresh rate of a set frequency. And the reason for that is because it's supposed to synchronize our brains into what's called an alpha wave state. And that's a, a certain frequency of brain waves. And this is mainstream. You can do a regular EEG at a neurologist and show that someone has alpha wave output from their brain. And when you're in an alpha wave state, that's a state of learning, of suggestibility. In other words, you are receptive to new information in the alpha. So in other words, if I was really able to ever convince anyone if I could get them in an alpha state when I talk to them, that would increase the chances, you know, considerably. But the TV puts people in an alpha state. And th there are studies that confirm this. And thus, you know, basically whatever programming, they call it TV programs for a reason, right? They don't call, they, I mean, sometimes we call it a show, but the official thing is programming. It's the programming guide, the TV guide magazine. And that's because there are subtle messages in the shows and overt ones in the news programs that give you information under the, in this hypnotic state that they want you to take in and believe and act upon. And in a crisis, especially, everyone turns to the TV as their information source. So all of the people were put under this hypnotic suggestion. And I don't know if you've ever seen like one of those comedian, comedians that does hypnosis. And yeah. um, it's very entertaining, right? They'll take a volunteer. And by the way, about 20% of the population is extremely easy to hypnotize. And those comedians are looking for someone like that because they'll, they'll be a much funnier show. And so they get them up there, right? And then they put them under hypnosis and they have them, you know, acting like, you know, uh, there was a guy who was like in his 40s and they had him singing like a virgin and, and telling right. Madonna, right? And he's acting like, like he's a lady and embarrassing himself and all this stuff. Well, that, that's exactly what is being done to most people right now. And you know that when that guy was singing like Madonna, you could try to talk to him and he wouldn't be able to believe you that he was really, you know, Joe Smith and not Madonna. He would really think he's Madonna, right? And no matter what rational thing you showed him, even I think, even if you showed him a photograph of himself, I think he would even deny it. He would be, see Madonna in the photograph because the hypnosis can be so strong. And this is what people are, you know, influenced by. Well, I mean, we've gone a while now. We're actually close to the end of time. I'm sorry about this. But uh, what, I guess in, in conclusion, what what advice do you have for people and what do you think is going to happen from here? I mean, we already discussed what's going to happen. What advice do you have for folks that, you know, are not really buying into this? What can they do? Well, you know, one thing is you can definitely, you know, trust yourself above all, do your own research, make your own determination about what sources are reliable and have the confidence that you actually are capable of understanding scientifically what's going on. If you have an average intelligence, you can actually understand these virus experiments. And that's why people like myself and Dr. Tom Cowan have been really trying to explain it in a way that you don't need the vocabulary words that they use to confuse you in the papers, but see that it's actually quite a simple, straightforward set of experiments, and you can easily determine what it proves or doesn't prove. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say is make sure that you take care of yourself. And in other words, eat healthy, clean foods, drink a lot of clean water, 
um, do some cleansing, make sure that your family's healthy, you know, provide them emotional nourishment, you know, have a lot of hugs, spend time together, do some normal things to help keep your sanity. And then the third thing, um, and, and perhaps this is the most important for the fate of humanity, is that if you see what's going on, don't cooperate, don't comply, don't take a test, don't wear a mask, don't socially distance, don't, for God's sake, uh, expose yourself to any genetic modification uh, vaccine injection. And those are the most important thing you can do, you know, organizing a rally, writing your legislature, lobbying, even filing a lawsuit. I don't think any of those things are going to result in any significant change. But if individuals make the decision that we are no longer going to cooperate, we're going to express our freedom um, and our sovereignty, that is the only power that we truly have to combat these evil forces and turn things around for our future. Yeah, I mean, how many people do you think it would take in mass to, uh, not mass, but en mass, M-A-S-S-E, to, uh, you know, to affect change? Well, you know, I want to say that each individual has the power to affect change for themselves, just with the power of one. But it's hard to say how many, like if we were to topple the whole situation, I, I would say if only 10% of the entire population stopped partic- you know, cooperating with everything and just went out into public like normal, um, I think that would be enough. Well, very good. Well, Andrew, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and see your stuff that's out there, your papers and your work? Well, the best thing is to uh, go on my website, which is andrewkaufmanmd.com. And if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, because I'm involved in quite a number of projects and interviews, uh, please sign up for my newsletter. Um, Also on my website, I just want to alert you to two other things, because one is that um, Tom Cowan, Sally Fallon, and I put together a statement on virus isolation, which gives a clear description of our main argument with some references and uh, over 5,000 people have signed an agreement so far and we're translating into other languages right now. So please um, take a look at that and see if you agree. And lastly, because of our food system causing a major deficiency in trace minerals, I sell um, a wonderful product called Shilajit that provides over 50 trace minerals and can uh, be an excellent nutritional supplement for uh, everyone. Okay, well, very good. Well, Andrew, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. It's been very good to talk to you. Thank you. You too, Richard. I appreciate the opportunity. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.